Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Our speaker this weekend is T.J. Serchuk. Is uh, part of Big Story Ministries. He also oversees discipleship at Bearspot Christian School and leads a missional community group here at Center Street Church. We have enjoyed having him in the pulpit this weekend, so would you give a warm welcome to TJ? <laughs> TJ, let me pray for you as you bring the Word of God to us today. Lord, thank you for what you're doing here in our midst. Now, Lord, we ask that you'd open up our hearts and minds to fully engage in what you've laid on TJ's heart for us that comes from your word that reflects your heart to us. So bless us now in him, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, and thank you for the opportunity to be here with you and to speak. They, uh, they asked me uh, if I could make sense of the whole Bible, and I do a four-hour conference that I think does that. And so, yeah, I can do that. And they said, can you do it in 20 minutes? <laughs> okay, so that's my task. Uh, somebody from the first service told me to tell you, buckle up. Uh, it's coming at you fast and um, consider yourself warned. So in Ephesians 3.11, we read that God is on an eternal mission. What is that mission? Colossians 1.20 to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So in other words, God, the eternal being, is on an eternal mission. And that mission is to reconcile all things to himself through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Why is God on this mission? God is on this mission, Revelation 7, 9 tells us, so that he can recruit worshipers from every kindred and every tribe and every tongue and every nation to gather around the throne of that son, who in Revelation is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah and a king who is the son of David. So God is on an eternal mission to reconcile worshipers from everywhere for the Lion of Judah, the son of David, King Jesus. We have a record of the events God has done in the fulfillment of that mission. The record is found in a book called The Bible. Fascinating book. And today I want to tell you the story of the Bible. And we're gonna do with it what we should with any book that we read for the first time. We're gonna pick it up, turn to page one, and let the author tell us what we need to know when we need to know it. So before there was anything, there was God. And Genesis 1-1 tells us in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He speaks things into existence, and then he takes it a step further, and he pronounces morality on that which he has created. He says, ooh, this is good. And he can say that because he himself is good. Everything that flows out of God is good because he is good. So when he creates something, it is necessarily good. Then he goes to the next level, and he creates mankind, humans, male, female, Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, and he creates them in his image. And he says, this is very good. Page one of our story, it's awesome. Page two, fantastic. Page three, <clears throat> conflict enters our story. Satan, who we find out later, is a fallen angel and the eternal enemy of God. Satan comes into the story, comes to Eve, and tempts her to sin. Now, what is sin? 
Sin is when we remove God from the equation, trying to do things our own way. You see, God put them in a perfect garden, and he said, you can eat of anything you see in here except for this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that, you're going to die, which seems really harsh to us until we understand that what's going on there is if they go to a tree for the knowledge of good and evil, something that is God, he is the knowledge of good and evil, they're trying to remove God from the equation. And Colossians tells us that everything exists and consists in God. So if you remove God from the equation, you're going to cease to exist. We have a word for ceasing to exist. It's called death. So if you eat of the fruit, you're going to die. Oh, but then the story gets a little bit more interesting because we read in Romans that Adam and Eve are what's called our federal head. What they do holds up against us in court. Simplest example I can think of, if Justin Trudeau declares war on another country, we're at war, whether or not you voted liberal, because he's our federal head. If Adam and Eve eat the fruit, we eat the fruit. If they sin, we sin. If they die, we die. Suddenly, this story gets very, very personal. Because your biggest problem, my biggest problem, is sin and death. Why do I say that? Because Satan comes in, he tempts Eve, and she eats the fruit. She hands it to Adam, Adam eats the fruit. And instantly, they are condemned to death, and so, are, so am I, so are you. And death, not just in the sense of your heart's going to stop beating, but as an eternal separation from the creator God. Well, this just got real interesting and real heavy real fast. We're on page three of a 1,200-page book, and everyone's going to die. Worst story ever. And then we get to possibly the biggest verse in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, where God comes in and he's speaking to Satan and to the woman. And he says, I'm going to put strife or enmity or war between you and her, between your offspring and her offspring. You're going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the plot of the Bible that we're going to fall follow. We need the serpent crusher. Because of sin, something's going to die. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem is sin, and sin is a problem because it leads to death. We need somebody to come and beat death, and it's promised through the offspring of the woman. So, before there was anything, there was God. God said, let there be. He created Adam and Eve. We need the offspring of the woman. So we look to their children, Cain and Abel. Is it Abel? Well, no, because Cain killed him. Is it Cain? No, God curses him. Oh, who is it? We find out it's Seth. You see, the author wants us to know. So we follow Seth. A couple of chapters later, the population of the world is blown up and everyone is doing that which is right in their own eyes, which is another way of saying they're removing God from the equation. They're sinning, except for one man. His name is Noah, his wife, their three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives. God tells Noah, I'm going to destroy the world with a worldwide flood build a boat, which is odd. They lived in the middle of a desert. Build a boat, get on it with all the animals, and God sends the flood and wipes everyone out. And I don't know if you realize this, but you and I were four guys on a boat in the desert away from the line ending. Close call. But God's writing the story, and God is on a mission, and the line continues. They get off the boat. God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They're fruitful, they multiply, and they build a city so God confuses their languages and spread them out. And we go, oh, now how are we going to find the serpent crusher? We turn the page to chapter 12 of Genesis, and God introduces to him, to us to a 75-year-old man named Abraham. And again, the author wants us to know, and he's saying, follow him. Abraham is 75, his wife is 65, and God gives him three promises. I'm going to give you a special land, many children, and a special child who's going to bless the world. What could be more of a blessing to the world than for somebody to, ruin our, to end our biggest problem, sin and death, to crush the serpent? So we're going to follow Abraham. Abraham, 75. Sarah, 65. No kids. Promised many. No kids. And 25 years later, when he's 100 and she's 90, they have one son whose name is Isaac, the son of promise. And you and I realize that we were a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman battling infertility away from eternal separation from God. It shouldn't have happened. <laughs> like, that's not how it works. But they have a kid, the son of promise. 
And the line continues. Then we have this day where God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac, up on a mountain and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And he does. Our only hope of eternal salvation is put on an altar. And Abraham raises the knife and is a half, away, half a second away from committing first degree murder. And God stops him. And a lamb is there in his place. Spoiler alert. Another day, another father is going to send his son, his only son, the one he loves, up a mountain as a sacrifice, and he's not going to stop it. But we're not there yet. So Isaac lives, and the line continues. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the firstborn, but God chooses Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons and a bunch of daughters. The two sons you need to know about are Judah, because remember, we're looking for the line of the tribe of Judah. Judah and Joseph. Joseph is Jacob's favorite. By the way, God has changed Jacob's name to Israel. So these are the 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel. These are the Israelites. So uh, Jacob chooses Joseph as his favorite. His brothers hate him. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in prison in Egypt, and then through a crazy series of events, he he ends up as the prime minister of Egypt and saves them from a famine, which is good because the famine is everywhere. So who comes to Egypt looking for food? His brothers who sold him into slavery. And they come in and through, again, a long story short, uh, they, they're reunited and the whole family moves down, about 70 people, and they're given this special land called Goshen and they move in. And we get to the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50, verse 20. We have this lovely verse where uh, jo Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we usually stop there because it looks better on bumper stickers and coffee cups. But we miss the most important phrase, which is still coming. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people alive. What is he talking about? Genesis 49 verse 10, uh, it says, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the obedience of the nations is his. You see, Joseph gets it. The last 13 chapters of Genesis that are all about Joseph are actually all about keeping Judah alive. If Judah dies in the famine, you and I die and are eternally separated from God. Close call. But God lets Joseph get sold into slavery, go to a prison, come to the top and save the family because God's writing a story and he's on an eternal mission. So the line continues. We turn the page from Genesis to Exodus, and as you turn that page, actually 350 years go by. Remember, about 70 people moved down to, down to Egypt, and most scholars believe by this point, 350 years later, that group of 70 is now 3.5 million people. There's another pharaoh on the throne. He doesn't know anything about Joseph. All he knows is there's 3.5 million foreigners in his land, and they're growing. So he puts them into slavery. He starts to commit genocide, killing off all the sons, and one of the slave women has a son. His name is Moses. And instead of having him killed, she tries for a slightly better outcome. She weaves some weeds together into a basket, sticks her son in it, and sends him down the second largest river in the world. Not your most recommended parenting technique, but it works because downriver, who's there? Oh, the queen, or I'm sorry, the princess. And she sees it. She's like, message in a bottle. She opens it up. Oh, I've always wanted a baby. She adopts the baby. I don't know if that's actually how it went, but probably. Um, I don't speak Egyptian, but I'm guessing. And she goes home, dad, look, I found a baby while I was taking a bath. Can I keep it? And he's sure. So anyway, Joseph, or, uh, Moses is now adopted into Pharaoh's house, who was the guy who wanted him dead. And he spends the next 40 years as a potential you know, heir to Egypt. And then one day he kills a guy. And instead of going to his grandpa, like you would in a normal totalitarian government and being like, kind of messed up, can you fix it? He decides to run like a fugitive, runs to the backside of a desert, meets a man named Jethro, marries his daughter, and spends the next 40 years as a shepherd, wandering around the wilderness. So from the end of Genesis to Exodus, we've got 350 years and 40 years in the palace and 40 years in the wilderness, that's 430 years. After 430 years where God has been silent, his special people are not in their special land, God reintroduces himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush, and he commissions Moses to go back to Egypt and to liberate his people. 
And God goes with him and he performs these 10 plagues, the 10th of which is called Death Angel. That night, Death Angel is coming and in every house, something is going to die. The firstborn is going to die. However, if you take a lamb, a perfect one, one without blemish, one without spot, and kill it as a sacrifice and take the blood of that lamb and paint it over the doorposts of your house, when death angel comes, anywhere he sees the blood of the lamb who has died in your place, he will pass over. Anywhere there's no blood, he will kill. That, that's exactly what happened that night. And he kills all over Egypt, including Pharaoh's own son. Pharaoh doesn't liberate them. Pharaoh kicks them out. And Egypt or Israel comes out of slavery under the blood of the lamb who died in its place and into unity and harmony with their God. And they meet God for the first time in centuries at Mount Sinai, where God, after 430 years of being slaves, they have no idea how to live free, how to live right before him, how to live right before each other. So he gives them 10 rules. We call them the 10 commandments. And he gives them a covenant. He says, if, very con big in conditional word, if you will keep these commandments, then I will be your God, you'll be my people, I will uh, give you your special land, I'll take the enemies out. It sounds awesome, and the people say, everything that the Lord has said, we will do, and instantly they go into immorality, and they, they make an idol, a golden calf. What are they doing? They're trying to remove God from the equation. And it's just a picture of what's gonna happen for the rest of the Old Testament. Israel's gonna reject their part of the covenant, God's gonna punish them, they'll come crawling back, we're sorry, and do it again, over and over. And this is Exodus. We get to Leviticus, Leviticus I can summarize in one sentence, which you're really thankful for at this point. Uh, Leviticus I can summarize in one sentence. Israel needs a sacrifice. And it's all pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice. Numbers, you know that book that just destroys your read through the Bible in a year plan every year? It actually has a purpose. It is there to give you the family tree of all the children of Israel, specifically the line of Judah, because we need the lion of Judah. We get to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy has two purposes. It's the second giving of the law, and it is also uh, the story of they were supposed to take the promised land. They didn't, so they disobeyed. God punishes them by having them wander around the wilderness for 40 years. Tells that story. Then we get to Joshua. The story starts to pick up. Moses was the leader. Moses dies. Joshua is the new leader. He leads the people into the promised land. And the first city they come to is the city called Jericho. He sends in a couple of spies. The police of Jericho find out. They come looking for him. The spies are hidden by a woman named Rahab, who's a prostitute. She makes a deal with them. Because I saved your life, when you conquer the land, will you save mine? They go, sure. They come in, they conquer the land, and they save her and her family. A little while later, Rahab actually marries a Jewish man from the tribe of Judah. His name is Sam, and they have a son named Boaz. Hold on to that. That's Joshua. We get to Judges, arguably the most messed up book in the history of mankind. It starts off bad, and it ends way worse. And there's a verse that shows up four times in Judges. It goes like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and the people did that which was right in their own eyes. People doing that which was right in their own eyes, that sounds just like Noah day. That's not good. That's people removing God from the equation and paying the price. And what's the author saying? We need a king who will tell people, like a king, maybe a man after God's own heart, who will turn them to God. Really, we need a king of kings, but even a human king would be fine. But we don't have that. That's Judges. Then we get to Ruth. Oh, isn't Ruth the book that teaches our youth groups how to date in the 21st century? Actually, no. That's not why Ruth is there. Let me tell you the story of Ruth very quickly. Here's how Ruth works. There's a guy in Israel, in Judah, in Bethlehem. Ooh, Things are starting to sound familiar. His name is Elimelech. Elimelech is married to Naomi. They have two sons. There's a famine, so they leave Bethlehem and go over into a Gentile territory called Moab. There, the two sons marry a couple of locals, one girl named Ruth, another girl named Orpah. Not Oprah, that's somebody totally different, Orpah. <laughs> So you've got, you now have this family. All three guys die, you now have three widows. Naomi says, I'm gonna go back to my people. 
uh, Orpah says, I'm going to stay here. Ruth has this hallmark speech. Your people, my people, your God, my God. She goes with them back to Bethlehem. And there she married through a crazy, crazy series of events. She marries a guy named Boaz. Yeah, that Boaz. It's all starting to tie together. This is fascinating. Ruth and Boaz get married. They have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has several sons, one of whom is named David. And so what happens is as we get out of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, we get to First and Second Samuel where the prophet Samuel is supposed to anoint a king because we need a king because the people are doing that which is right in their own eyes. He anoints one. It's not the right one. He anoints another one, a guy named David from Bethlehem of Jesse. Ooh. And then David is given this special covenant in 2 Kings 7, 12 and 13. And he's told, that because of you, I'm going to make a covenant with you and your kingdom will never end and someone will always be alive and eventually one of your children is going to rule forever. Whoa, a forever king. I mean, it's early to say, but a forever king, that sounds like a serpent crusher because my biggest problem, your biggest problem is sin and death and we need that to end. We need somebody to end that. Well, who better than a forever king? So we follow David because if David dies, you and I are eternally separated from God. We need him to stay alive. So if he were to happen to pick a fight with a professional murderer named Goliath, that would be very bad which is exactly what he does. And suddenly the story of David and Goliath has nothing about, uh, is nothing to do with, you know, a football movie or you facing the giant of your Mondays. It has everything to do with David picking a fight with a guy who is nine foot six and kills people for the last 20 years and is never lost and they're going one-on-one. And if David dies, I am eternally separated from God. But God's writing the story and God's on a mission and he keeps the line alive and David beats Goliath. He becomes the king. He's called a man after God's own heart. But he does sin. And God says, because of your sin, violence and immorality will always be in your family. After him, his son Solomon reigns. He writes the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Then after Solomon, the kingdom splits. The 10 northern tribes are a group of king, or a kingdom called Israel. The two southern tribes are a kingdom called Judah. That's the one we're following. First and second kings is really the history of Israel, the 10 northern tribes. And it kind of goes like this. There was this king, he sinned, this king, he sinned. So God punished them, ended the line, new dynasty. Uh, same thing it happens three or four times, new dynasties. First and second chronicles is basically the history of the same time, but going on in Judah. Those kings sinned too, and God punishes them. But you see this verse keep emerging. But because of his promise to his servant David, David, he does not utterly destroy them. So God keeps the story alive. And during this time, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, we see new characters emerging. They're called prophets. These are guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and they keep coming in and saying, telling to the children of Israel, stop sinning. Stop sinning. Stop removing God from the equation. But it gets so bad that one of them, Jeremiah, in the 31st chapter of his book, in verses 33 to 34, he actually starts talking about a new covenant where God says, I will put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts. No more tablets of stone. That's good. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. They will know me. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. Well, this is cool. This is bigger. This is better. This involves more people and it relies only on God. There was no if in here. And this sacrifice, it's going to forgive sins. Man, we just kill it. We, all we do is we kill a lamb to cover the past sins. And then as soon as we sin, we need another lamb. This one's going to forgive. Oh, this is good. And as a Gentile standing up here, not a Jew, no Jewish blood in here. This is good because I want in on this. And so far it's only been about Israel. But back to our story, the prophets tell them, stop sinning or God will punish you. They, they, God, leave us alone. They try to remove God from the equation. So God takes his special people and he takes them out of their special land and into captivity. 
We have some stories throughout this time of captivity. One is like the book of Esther, where a Jewish girl has to manipulate her way to the top with the king to prevent a genocide of her whole family, and the line stays alive. Uh, we have this story, uh, some good stories, like Ezra and Nehemiah, where Jews get to come out of captivity and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. You have stories of Hosea, where God and his unrelenting, never-ending love keeps coming after his children of Israel, even when they're unfaithful to him. Or what about Micah? Micah changes his tune a little bit when he starts talking about there's going to be another ruler who's going to be born in Bethlehem of David, and his kingdom will never end. Whoa, so not only are we watching David, but we're specifically looking to Bethlehem. Now, you remember all the way back here, we said that God has been on an eternal mission to reconcile all things to himself and recruit worshipers from everywhere. So far, we've been talking about Israel. Well, at this point in the story, we start to see little snippets where salvation and grace start trickling over into the nations around and into Gentiles. What am I talking about? The book of Daniel. Daniel, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken as slaves into Babylon, and as a result, people get saved. What about the book of Jonah? There's a fun one. Jonah's a Jewish prophet who would rather commit suicide by drowning himself than take the story of salvation to the Ninevites, so God uses a fish to keep him alive so that salvation will get to Nineveh, and now one day we're going to gather around, uh, around with worshipers from Nineveh because God is on a mission to recruit worshipers from everywhere. And so the story continues. But overall... This is a really dark time in Israel's history. God's special people keep telling God, leave us alone, leave us alone, trying to remove God from the equation. So God gives them exactly what they want. He gives them a silent God. And he goes silent for 400 years. And as we turn the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's a blank page usually in your Bible. Symbolic. Nothing from God for 400 years. Oh, his people are crying out, God, we're your special people. God, where are you? God, why have you left us? He seems to have disappeared. He hasn't disappeared. He's just waiting for, as, one, what, as what one author will say later, is the fullness of time. That's how the Old Testament ends. A silent God and a waiting people. And then we turn the page to the New Testament. And the plot starts to thicken and the pace starts to quicken. And God, who has been silent for 400 years, starts speaking to people, one of whom is a teenage girl, a virgin girl named Mary. And he tells her, you're going to be pregnant with the Holy Ghost. She gets pregnant, her and her fiance, Joseph, from Bethlehem of Judah, from the family of David. Whoa. And they're told that their son, the angel says, your son is going to be named Jesus. And Matthew tells us what it literally means. Literally, for he will save his people from their sin. Okay, this is Bethlehem. That's Micah. This is of the tribe of Judah. That's David. This is important. Save his people from his sins. We got to watch this kid. This, this pregnancy needs to last. But she is a teenage virgin girl who's pregnant. It's a scandal in a strict religious society. She survives that. She survives a trip across the desert on a donkey in her ninth month. She gives birth in a barn and survives that. Herod tries to kill the baby. She survives that and so does the baby. And they flee as fugitives down to, of all places, Egypt. It's all coming around. And they stay there. And then from that point on till the time he's 30, we have very little. But then when he's 30, oh wait. So 400 silent years and then he's born and then when he's 30, 430 years. We've seen this before. 
Genesis to Exodus, 350 years, and Moses is in the palace for 40 years, then that's 390, and then, and then when he comes back, that's 430, 430, 430. It's like the author's making a connection and wants us to see something. Whatever happens next is probably important, because over here, it was the Passover lamb, and then Jesus is 30 years old, and he walks out into the wilderness where his cousin, John the Baptist, is preaching and baptizing, and John stops and points at Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and every Jewish mind there goes, because it was just, that, that's Passover stuff. That's Egypt, the lamb of God. That's bigger, who takes away sin. Lambs cover sin of the world. That's Gentiles, not just Jews. This is big. And right after that, John baptizes Jesus, and we have a Trinity moment as God the Father looks down and says, this is my beloved son. Jesus, the son, comes out of the water, and the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. And everybody's standing there's like, something big just happened. And instantly, the Spirit takes Jesus out into the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan himself. And this is the only time we have recorded in the history of our story where the serpent and the serpent crusher go face to face. And once again, we have put all our eggs in one basket. We are banking on this Jesus being the serpent crusher. And so if he gives in to sin, you and I are forever separated from God. He does not. He withstands the temptation, has a public ministry of three years uh, where he becomes a political and religious enemy. And remember, he's a lamb, so it's time for the lamb to be sacrificed. Well, one night he's having Passover, the night unlike any other, and he's having Passover with his disciples, and he takes this meal that for thousands of years has been about that over there, Egypt, Israel, and he makes it about himself. He takes the bread and says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he takes the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And every time we take communion, we remember this. And he took that meal and made it about him. And that night, one of his best friends sells him out and betrays him. And he's arrested, put through an absolute mockery of a trial, and he's crucified. Why? Because of sin. Something has to die. Someone has to die. Now, if the lamb were to die in your place, perhaps you could live. The lamb is sacrificed. The serpent crusher is sacrificed and his heel is bruised badly, just like Genesis 3.15 says. The line seems to come to a screeching end. But after being in the tomb for three days, Jesus comes back to life. And because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, sin's debt has been paid. The power of the serpent has been broken. Death no longer has the power. And we, not just Jews, we can be reconciled to the Father because of Jesus' sacrifice. Well, he comes back to life, and he lives for another 40 days. He does a bunch of miracles, and he's seen by over 500 eyewitnesses, which would hold up in any court of law. And at the end of that, he ascends to heaven, where he sits down at the right hand of the Father on his throne as King Jesus. That is why you and I are here today. 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, worshipers gathered from all over the world, worshiping the line of the tribe of Judah, the serpent crusher, the son of David, the forever king, King Jesus. That's why we are here. That's what we are studying. And so, what is an appropriate response to this? Well, we do missions. We tell the story of the serpent crusher, this one right here. 
And we join God on God's mission because God is on an eternal mission. And that eternal mission is to reconcile to himself all things through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. So that one day there will be worshipers from every kindred and every tribe and every tongue and every nation gathered around the throne of King Jesus. And so one day, if you have come to God through Christ, you will gather around the throne with worshipers from Egypt and from Babylon and from Nineveh and from Africa and from Europe and Asia and South America and every part of God's creation. And you'll gather around that throne and you'll forever say, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and power and might and strength. And we'll never stop saying it because it will never stop being true. That's the story of the Bible. Man, what a privilege to have one of these. And the crazy thing is because I own one, this church is gonna give one to somebody who doesn't. So go out and mark, and if you're not sure how many you, are, you have, round up. <laughs> like, um, evangelistically speaking, how many do you have? And, uh, and so this is the story of the Bible. Know it, read it, study it, learn it, share it, do it again. Because that's it. That's the story of the Bible. The serpent is crushed. The serpent crusher wins. Jesus Christ is Lord and King. The end. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.